Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of the very occasionally published Apology magazine. Today's guest is the author and psychoanalyst Jameson Webster. This is Jameson's second time as a guest on Apology, and we have a very specific purpose on this episode. We are going to talk almost exclusively and at length about Sigmund Freud. I do ask Jameson, uh, as is my custom on this podcast, about what she's reading right now for a bit at the start, but we get into and stay with Freud uh, pretty quickly. So I'd read some Freud earlier in my life, uh, just a couple books like The Case Histories and Civilization and Its Discontents, and I enjoyed them, but I always wanted to dive deeper into his writing. I know there are very pro and very con people regarding him, and then there are people all over the spectrum of opinions in between. Personally, I'm... I've always been mixed, but leaning toward agreeing with a lot of what he has to say. Uh, So in the past few months, I read a lot of Freud. I think it was something like 12 books in total, uh, including the biography of him by the writer Peter Gay. Then I went to Jameson, a good friend and a passionate Freudian, to ask some questions and try to gain some clarity. I tried to keep the conversation that follows as accessible as possible for someone who knows about some of Freud's general concepts but hasn't read much by him yet or maybe nothing at all. So I hope this can serve as a sort of tantalizing introduction to some of his bigger ideas and some of his attitudes. Jameson's enthusiasm for Freud is palpable and infectious, so it's always fun talking with her about him. Uh, A note to the listeners who make it deep into this long episode, we were recording in Jameson's hotel room while she was visiting L.A., and apparently the groundskeepers at the Chateau Marmont do not stop operating their leaf blowers to make a podcast recording easier. So you might hear some annoying ambient sounds here and there, and I apologize for that. But now, at long last, is Jameson Webster and Freud on the Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? Uh, I just read a case by the psychoanalyst, French psychoanalyst Françoise Dolto called Dominique, a case of an adolescent. It's a psychotic, I guess what you would call today autistic. I think you're not allowed to put those two words in the same sentence anymore, but an autistic child that she (laughs) kind of cures in 14 sessions. She cures. See, I'm not used to thinking of psychoanalysis as a thing that has an end point now, like that there's a cure that can actually occur. No, it's true. I mean, we don't know what happens then, but he goes from being really delirious and um, not able to be in school and about to get kicked out to like being incredibly coherent and showing what he understands about his life and pulling his shit together in these amazing 14 sessions. Why would something that was once called psychosis now be called autism? Well, they called it autistic then. They understood it as a psychosis. And I think that today they don't understand it that way. They, they use kind of biology or mm. genetics as an explanation. When was this taking place? This would have been in the 60s. And it was translated and prefaced by Robert Coles, who was the biographer of Eric Erickson and his own thing in terms of like the cultural study of children in America. And it's kind of an amazing moment to think that this was translated, prefaced, like put forward into the universe. It's a, it's a, it's a case that's really psychoanalytic to the extent that she takes the, she, she imposes on his story, the Oedipal 
narrative. Mm-hmm. And she says, here's why he's suffering basically from the incestuous fantasy of his parents. And she's going to grab him out of it and put him on his own two feet. And you watch her do it. And it's really stunning. And the first moment in the case, um, he comes in and he says, I had some dreams. And she says, oh. And he says, yeah, but they made me feel untrue. And she says, oh, but they probably said something true about your life that you don't want to know. And that's what made you feel false. And he says, how did you know? And then it, it takes off from there. It goes from there. Yeah. So she takes, she wants to remove the Oedipal framework from his thinking? No, she wants to pull him out of the incest. I see. He's in bed with his mom. Literally? Literally. Yeah. And she says, you don't like it there. I know you don't. And, um, you know, you know that a boy should sleep on his own and that sleeping next to your mother does something in your body and to your genitals that doesn't make you feel very good, even if it feels good. And he says, yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes and he starts sleeping on his own. Did she kind of, like, shame him into doing that? No. 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 That's what's actually really beautiful about it is that, you know, I think it's hard probably for people to read her theorization of it. But when you see what she does with him, how gentle she is, how um, attentive she is to what he says and what he's thinking and what he means, which clearly nobody listened to, it's really stunning. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get a sense of why the analyst has to think in the crazy ways that they do, I mean, and, and accept it to a certain degree. Because without it, there's no way that she could understand what he was saying. Analysts have to think in crazy ways. Mm-hmm. It's it's upsetting. I had younger students reading it, and they were like, "I don't know about this. I don't, you know, why is she making all these assumptions?" <laughs> and you you know, if you if you listen to what she does in the sessions, you see how this is informing the intricacy of her interactions with him and the logic by which she proceeds from session to session and what she's trying to do to help him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I think you have to have a kind of brutal theoretical framework that you're working with that you don't impose on the patient. You don't say it to them. You don't force it upon them, but you have to use it to find your way through because otherwise you'd be really lost with this kid who didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, he really spoke in fragmented hallucinatory, psychotic-y ways. Mm-hmm. And she's able to, um, she's really able to listen. I mean, she's an extraordinary analyst. Why do you call the framework brutal? I guess it feels brutal. I mean, it's, you know, incest, incest fantasy, body erections, problems, you know, what's going on with the mother, why the mother has this need for the child to be dependent on her in a certain way. And so you're sort of putting this and people don't like that. I think these days they, it it bothers them as if you're, um, importing something into a situation, you know, you're coming in with a a priori idea about what's going on. Mm -hmm. But to you, that's, that's valuable, that framework. I think it's really valuable. I think you'd be kind of lost if you didn't have it as an analyst. I mean, I can imagine wandering through a patient, a client, what do we call them? I like patient. You like patient? I do. I like doctor patient. I think. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Wandering through a patient's mind without some kind of a roadmap or some kind of like a navigation tool could probably be really bewildering. I think it's really bewildering. And I think also it's not as if you, the fantasy that you have no tools, I think is its own ideology or its own tool in a way. So then you have all kinds of frameworks that you're not paying attention to versus the fact that you 
psychoanalytically speaking, have certain ideas, it doesn't mean that they're not open in a, in a certain kind of way to hear from the patient what their response is to mm-hmm. what you think or what, you know, you're kind of reading in their life. But, um, your, the idea is to use that. And it's about a general kind of humanism, you know, what it takes to be a human being mm-hmm. and why human beings suffer the way they do. And so I think it's quite generous, but I think that people read it and these days and they, they get a little freaked out. Is that just because it's old? I think it's, it's old, yeah. And anything old is suspect? Suspect, suspect, you know, it's probably heteronormative or could be heteronormative. Right. Right. How do we feel about heteronormativity? <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> There's no use for it. What made you read this? I was thinking about adolescence. I wrote something in the New York Times about um, the problem with adolescence these days. So I wanted to go back to some of the kind of seminal texts that I remembered from that time. And this is one of the rare cases of an adolescent. And the, the subtitle in the case is like, you know, the case of an adolescent, Dominique. So it's very funny that it's announced right away as an adolescent, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, not a child or an adult. So I wanted to kind of think about what psychoanalysis has said about adolescence, which is a lot, but also not much. Do you treat adolescents? I do. How are they different from adult patients, like essentially? Um, well, their parents are paying for it. <laughs> no, I mean, but that, that's a thing. I mean, they're not, they're not paying themselves. So the question of them coming there, wanting to be there, understanding what the exchange is with you is more complicated than an adult who shows up. Yeah. I imagine that also makes their parents kind of a presence in the room in a way, knowing that, I mean, paying for something is a kind of way of controlling it. It is, it is. And and I think it's the analyst's job to get them as far away from it as possible, to establish the trust with an adolescent, which is more, and the confidentiality, which is more important than with a child who doesn't really have those same concerns yeah. as much. Yeah. And they also have this amazing thing, which is the biological, sexual, like, push. And this would be a very Freudian, you know, for our purposes today, idea that, you know, when you have the drive on your side, there's this incredible mobility, a mobility that you don't necessarily have as an adult. And when you can kind of reach an adolescent and you have that on your side, they can do incredible things very quickly. A mobility from like where to where, from what to what? From the drive to the world. Which drive are we talking about? We're talking about the Freudian drive, the libido. The libido is on the side of the adolescent, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's why I like them because I don't know, like the minute that you just untangle them a tiny bit from whatever they're mired in with respect to their life at that particular moment, then all the energy and openness to the world and what it has to offer is on their side. And, you know, I mean, we know the whatever the artistic rock and roll kind of productions of adolescence are enormously important. And so they all have that possibility within them. What do you mean rock and roll productions of adolescence? I mean, the great music comes from adolescence into the early 20s. I mean, don't you think? Yeah. Not to say that there aren't great. The energy is adolescent. Yeah. Yeah. The energy is adolescent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know what you mean. We're going to get to Freud in a second, but I'm really curious about teenagers now. Do you notice 
any commonalities amongst the teenagers that you treat these days? Something that might be like societal or cultural that's affecting them that hasn't been affecting them before or feels very of the moment? What is the moment doing to teenagers, I guess, is what I'm wondering. Well, this is what I, um, this is what I wanted to write about in that, in that piece was that, well, they're killing themselves, um, in massive amounts. So there's like a 60% increase, which is not just pandemic related, which a lot of people think it started in 2008, that there had been a decrease in suicides. And then between 2008 and now it's increased 60%, which is insane. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Um, and the acts, which you often think of suicidality in teenagers being, um, I don't know, like cries for help type stuff. They're actually more severe. They're hanging themselves and they're jumping off a building. So it's, it's real. The kind of thing that you can't take back. Yeah. You can't take it back. Yeah. Um, and it's contagious. So like one will do it. And then many in the same school kind of a situation or amongst friends. So I was trying to think about that. I don't know that I came to any answers, but in so far as the ones that I've worked with, there is a kind of exit the world stage direction that a lot of them are going as if they can't find the exit avenues that you used to find with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They're finding like, I don't want to be part of this world anymore in all kinds of different ways. And depression, which... You know, all of this stuff is typical adolescent, but there's something about it to me that feels um, stronger. Today. Yeah. Yeah. A kind of, um, like, the world's played out. Mm-hmm. And that can be an adolescent feeling, right? Like, the, this, mm-hmm. this world's played out. But it, it feels more pervasive. It feels more stuck yeah. in a way that kind of freaks me out. I remember feeling really engaged with the world when I was an adolescent. Yeah. I was, you know, mopey and depressive, but I felt really engaged and excited. And there was like all kinds of things to do. And I was just being held back by stupid adults who Mm. were annoying me, but they don't have that feeling. Yeah. The main thing for me, I think as an adolescent was wanting to, or waiting to not be one anymore. Yeah. And these kids aren't looking forward like that. They're not looking forward like that. Um, precisely. It was like, when can I, you know, yeah. like, can it be on my own terms? Like, when can I get to be an adult and looking at like older-ish people? I mean, everyone seemed old to yeah. me, but looking at some of them and being like, oh, this looks good. This looks interesting. And I don't have that sense. I don't have a sense that they can find little bits of ideals in the world that they want to move towards or even rush towards, because that's an adolescent thing is to try to rush for the door. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Freud. Okay. Um, let's talk about your personal history with Freud first. When did you first read him? What are your first memories of Freud? There's a couple that are confusing. There's like a conflation. So I think that I picked up a book at Borders on US-1 in South Miami called Severe Personality Disorders by Otto Kernberg. And I think I read it. How old were you? I would have been 13 or 14. Jesus. And he's one of the worst writers. Forgive uh-huh. me, Otto Kernberg. Um, no, really, because he's his, English is a second language, but also like a psychiatrist. So it's very severe kind of car mechanic stuff. So I don't know how I read this book. I mean, even reading it now at this point is painful. Mm-hmm. But I read it and I got kind of excited by it. And then I probably forgot it. 
which is what the confusion is. Cause I, it's not like I put together, this is psychoanalysis. I just found this book. And then when I went to college at 16, I read Dora mm-hmm. and I had to do the class presentation. I don't remember what I said. I don't actually remember much, but I developed a thing. I think at that point, a thing for Freud. Yeah. But wait, before we move too far away from it, what do you think drew you to that book at 13? Was it the title? Was there just something appealing about what it might have been about? I think the title, I mean, I think the severe. Mm. <laughs> Actually, my son's name is Soren, which means severe, which I never <laughs> thought about until right now. Um, I wanted to explain my family or something. So I think that's what I was, I was looking for something that would explain something to mm-hmm. me. What kind of music were you listening to at the time? Guns and Roses. Nice. (laughs) So Guns and Roses and Kernberg. Guns and Roses and Kernberg. Yeah. And then it would like move into grungy stuff because that was the time. So for those who don't know, can you just kind of like tell us what Dora is or who Dora is? So Dora's the only case of Freud's. Um, He has five cases. It's the only one that's a woman, and it's early. Um, He was writing, he was working on the case of Dora at the same time that he wrote The Interpretation of Dreams, which is his first big book in 1900. Um, And then Dora would come shortly thereafter. And he would have already have written Studies in Hysteria with Breuer, which was the beginning idea of the treatment of hysterical patients, which we can talk about what hysterical patients are. But Dora's the case. And it's a funny case because it's not the kind of grand hysterics of the Studies in Hysteria where they had fainting fits or spoke other languages or, you know, had paralyses in their arms or whatever it would be. Um, he, she was what he called a minor hysteria. She had a cough. <laughs> like, a, like a sort of like um, compulsive cough, right? Yeah, yeah, she had a compulsive cough. And she had a suicidal thing. She left a suicide note for her parents to find. And she had a, what he called a hysterical reaction to an older man coming onto her, which is part of what makes people really upset about the case because um, the guy pushes his erection against her at the age of 13 and then comes onto her at the age of 16 and then she freaks out. And right. Freud kind of says, what's your problem with this? And everyone's like, oh my God, what's, mm-hmm. you know, how could he say this to this poor teenager who's being molested? But that wasn't his question, wasn't what's your problem with this? It was that she had tolerated it for a long time up until a certain point, and that that was the question. What was her desire in it yeah. in, in relationship to these people? So it's this case of minor hysteria, and Freud treats her, and she blows out of the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a failed case, and it's important that the first case that he writes up is a failed case because part of what he also wants to do is to show what he learns from her. And part of what he learns from her is about transference, that he should not have thought that he could just explain her life to her or explain her symptoms to her or explain her dreams to her. He should have, understand, he should have understood that um, all of the feelings that she had about the adults in her life and how rotten they were um, was going to be also put on him. And that this would have to be dealt with before he could cure her. And he desperately wanted to cure her, and she knew that. So she had the keys in her pocket to slay him, which she did. Right. 
Um, which is why sometimes it's a case for feminists um, to be upset about, like, here's another guy ignoring misogynistic sexual abuse and yeah. pretending that this is all just fine. Or it could be a feminist case in which for the first time he presents to you the struggles of a young woman and all of her feelings about sexuality, all of her feelings about the adult sexuality around her in which she also takes another man down. So it's a funny case that way, mm-hmm. you know, choose your own adventure. How do you see it? I mean, I can guess, but which side <laughs> do you fall on and why? I mean, I think, you know, Freud's canny already at this point. It's early in his career, but he's, he knows what he's doing. So he's not presenting to you something that he feels is complete or well done. And in fact, it's called a fragment of an analysis of a hysterical patient. And, you know, he, the whole case ends in this complete failure. And he actually has to ask her for forgiveness. You know, do you forgive me for not giving you a full cure? Mm. And I know you must be pretty angry at me, and I understand that. You know, so there, yeah. there's, there's this way in which I think he understands that he's presenting something with many, many sides to it. And he's just doing what Freud does, which is to give you all the material possible. And I think you have to... I mean, if you think of the time, 1900, 1905 is when he publishes it, but he's probably seeing her around 1900. I don't know. You have to admire this this documentation Mm -hmm. and the ways that from that moment on, it has been sifted and re-sifted at every moment throughout history. And it's provided fodder for feminism, for another moment in feminism, which we want to turn against Freud, for, you know, all of these different evolutions. For Me Too, they did a whole thing in the New York Times as, like, Dora, Me Too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so it's always, it's always kind of there as something that you can read in a whole new way. It changes with cultural context yeah. changing. That's really interesting. We hit upon a couple of terms that I want to try to define. Okay. Um, but first off, I just want to say there was this sort of leap in Dora that felt so Freud to me that I really loved where he was talking about her cough and trying to diagnose her cough. And if I'm not mistaken, he was sort of, he linked it to her father's impotence mm-hmm. and oral sex. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just that that train of thought, that leap, that way of looking at it was so fascinating to me that he was able to do that and that it felt so right. Mm-hmm. Do you think, was, it, was he right? I think he was right. Yeah. I think he was right. And it's not even just the, I mean, there's so much in that moment. It's not just that the father's impotent. There's this question of, you know, because she babysits the children of the mistress, Frau K, so that the father and her can get it on. Right. When Herr K is out of town. Herr K being the guy who comes on to her. Herr K being the guy who comes on to her and the husband of the father's mistress. I mean, these adults are... It's a soap opera. It's a total Viennese soap opera. She babysits them so the father and the mistress can get it on. And he says, well, you must imagine what they're doing. And you know that your father's impotent. The reason that she knows her father's impotent is because everybody had syphilis. The mother had syphilis. She had syphilis when she was born. The father had syphilis. And then he had all these other medical problems. So what did she imagine was going on between the two of them? Jacques Lacan, a French psychoanalyst, pointed out that it's probably not that the father was receiving oral sex, but that he was giving it, as Mm -hmm. impotent men do. Mm -hmm. And Freud kind of didn't put that detail in. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, he didn't. Why, why do you think he didn't? I don't know. Maybe it's his own problem. Maybe it is. Maybe he couldn't conceive of that, that kind of oral sex. Yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned transference, which I think is one of the things around psychoanalysis and Freud that gets misunderstood a lot. I know that I used to misunderstand it. Um, How did you misunderstand it? I thought of it in a very simple way. And I thought that it was about falling in love with your analyst, basically. And then I started to think, well, maybe it's more making your analyst a surrogate for another person in your life that is not necessarily a lover, but could be a mother or a father or a sister or a brother. Um, but yeah, what is transference? I mean, one way that I think is very easy to talk about it is to say that there's that, that there's the transfer of something onto the analyst. So it could be love, it could be hate, it could be parental pasts, scenarios, wishes. Um, and I think that that's certainly the case, but the model of that then is that it's a pure repetition, mm -hmm. right? Like something gets repeated with your analyst. Mm -hmm. And that misses the creative element, which is that within the relationship to the analyst, everything that's brought into the room is some kind of a repetition, but it's a repetition that's also a new situation. So you're bringing all of the material into the relationship with the doctor that then has the possibility of being understood anew, worked over anew, signified anew, so on and so forth. So one could just say that transference is the possibility of work the possibility of working something over okay. in the intensity of the relationship, which is taking place in a certain framework, yeah. right? Of speaking to the doctor about your life and what's on your mind. Right. And the reason that I bring that up that's important is because um, the idea is that you welcome this in all of its manifestations, including all the feelings that come up and, and all of the idiosyncrasies that are developed in the relationship. And you're there to be the vessel for it, but also to read it. Mm -hmm. And Freud said he didn't read it. There were a hundred clues of what was going on, not just between Dora and Herr Kay and Frau Kay and her father and her mother, but what was going on between the two of them. And he paid no attention to this, as one wouldn't. Because in the normal doctor-patient relationship at that point in time, you treat the, the patient as an object of investigation versus a partner in the relationship. Mm -hmm. See, I'm a little bit lost now. Why? Is it that... Is it sort of a way of play-acting transference? Is it a way of sort of trying out things in the therapeutic environment that you can then take into the real world with the person that you're sort of transferring from? Does that make sense? No, because play-acting would assume a consciousness of it. And the idea is that it's really completely unconscious, that you come in and you do something that you don't understand that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so you analyst being in it, but also outside of it, has the opportunity to bring to your awareness what you're doing that you don't know that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And what's that going to do for you therapeutically once you're aware of that? It's going gonna, it's gonna to put it to bed. Okay. <laughs> you don't believe me? <laughs> no, not in my personal experience, but maybe I just haven't been made aware of it enough yet. In my analysis, I think there has been transference. But I don't think that we've, like, I think we've both been kind of reticent to address it. I think it's really important. I mean, in, in my experience as an analyst, something very precise happens in the relationship. And I, it's almost as if you build more and more and more towards 
the scene, I don't know, that is going to become the determining scene between you and the patient. And it's not to say that there's not all kinds of things that happen along the way, or there aren't many, many scenes, but there is something in a full analysis, you know, the whole four times a week shebang, 10 years, as if you, you build up to a place where something is going to occur between the two of you. Almost like you realize, oh, this is what the fuck I've been doing the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then I think it can kind of go away a bit. Especially the intensity of the jouissance, the enjoyment, the drive-ladenness of it. Uh-huh. You know, I came here to try to get this out of you, to make you understand this about me, to, you yeah. know, find you the kind of person who was going to do X to me, so on and so forth. We better define jouissance. Jouissance is enjoyment in French, but it's also a legal term, which um, means the, the right over an object to enjoy it in a specific way. So for Freud, this is about the drive, the libido, the way in which enjoyment has a certain economy in a, in a given human being, and the ways in which we um, direct it at others' objects, mm-hmm. life, and try to extract from it some sort of modicum of satisfaction. Who was it who first used that term? It was Lacan. It was Lacan, right. What have you been in terms of transference to your patients? My transference to them or their transference to me? I'm interested in yours to them. (sighs) The counter-transference? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Mm. I mean, as a Lacanian person, a Lacan-invested reader of Freud person, the idea in a way is that the the counter-transference that you have, you have to try to get rid of because it's a problem. And some analysts think that it's important for the analyst to investigate their feelings that they have about their patients because it will give them clues. Mm-hmm. And um, the more Frenchy psychoanalytic side says, this is just you bringing your bias, you have your feelings and you put them aside and then you listen to the patient and you read them as rigorously as possible without thinking that you're going to intuit something through your feelings. So Mm -hmm. this is a long argument in analysis. But, you know, there are like one thing that I think is important is that you understand the kind of feelings that are aroused in you in certain circumstances, which I try to pay attention to, like if I get frustrated with a patient or if I have particular feelings about like I have trouble sometimes with really, really obsessional symptoms, like people who want to control the session and control what they're saying. And I could get really frustrated that they're not whatever freer in their speech. And I have to get rid of this frustration because it's not helpful. Do you also try to sort of guide them or direct them or is that a no, no? You try, but you always run the risk. I think when you're frustrated with what a patient is doing of making them feel like they're doing something wrong and they're not, they're only doing what they can do. Right. So I should, instead of being frustrated or telling them what they're doing, isn't what I want them to do, trying to find something, a creative solution. Let's talk about hysteria mm-hmm. and what that meant to Freud. And two, let's talk about the accusation that's directed toward Freud of being a misogynist mm-hmm. and why that's not true, because I don't think it's true. 
No, I don't think it's true. Where do you want to start? Well, we could talk about what he meant by hysteria, because I think that's something that comes up as part of what's misogynistic about him, as if it's another male, dead white European male doctor person diagnosing women as sick. And that's not, for me, what he meant by hysteria. And in fact, Freud called himself a hysteric. And part of his whole self-analysis was of his own hysteria, which was quite extreme from um, a total reverential, submissive, transferential relationship to this guy, Wilhelm Fleece. He let him operate on his nose mm. to cure his depression and like kind of got into this guy's theory that he was having his period out of his nose, that he had his own menstrual cycles that would be self-evident somehow. Wow. Yeah. And, and he let the guy operate on his nose and he let him operate on some of his patients. <laughs> <laughs> um, and his own revulsion with sexuality. I mean, he did a lot of investigation of this. Um, and the moment at which his desire collapsed into a depression, which he called sort of hysterical aspect of his, his self, and so to get to the definition of hysteria, what was important for him was that the hysteric spoke the truth of the unconscious. And he learned from these women who said, stop touching me, stop telling me what to do, stop telling me what's wrong with me, let me talk, that when they spoke, their symptoms unraveled in their discourse, like in what they came to say to him, and that they gave a whole picture of their life that they didn't know was what they were suffering from and that their symptoms spoke to. And they taught him about the importance of dreams. They taught him about the importance of the body mm -hmm. um, in relation to the unconscious. They taught him about the importance of unconscious sexuality, infantile sexuality, which at that point, at least most people had repressed as even a thing. And so for him to call something hysterical would be to speak to the person who teaches you about the unconscious. That's not our typical way of understanding it. We think of it as sick women who are being dramatic. Yeah, I think of it as like Isabella Johnny in possession, like losing her mind on the subway. Yeah. That's like the stereotype of hysterical, right? Yeah. But that's not the way it looks to Freud at all. No, it's not the way it looks to him. Um, and I think he he's the person who wanted to go there with them. You know, he's saying, you take me where you want to take me. Let me go with you where, where, where you need to go. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's why he's not a misogynist. And there's things that he didn't understand and there's blind spots that he had. Like, that's 100% the case. It's not as if we're going to put a halo around Freud and say that he was perfect. But he, I think, tried in earnestness to listen to what these women had to say. And I think no one was listening to them. They were masturbating them or giving them water treatments or locking them up or ignoring them or... Masturbating them? Was that a treatment? That was a treatment, yeah. Wow. What was it supposed <laughs> to... Was it supposed to just be cathartic or something? Yeah, it was supposed to be cathartic. Wow. Never heard about that. Um, how much of it do you think also has to do with the time and place that he was living in? The cultural context. I think it has a lot to do with it to the extent that if you think of the turn of the century, it's a moment <laughs> between an old world and a new world. Mm -hmm. And it's also a moment in which Western medicine, I think, as we now understand it, is coming into its own, I guess we would say. And Freud... 
I feel has his feet in both places. He doesn't quite go with the winds of progress, but he's also not stuck in an older worldview. And because of that, he's able to do something extraordinary, which is bring to the surface the meaning of dreams, bring to the surface the importance of sexuality. And he does this in this strange way by listening, by starting, at least at the very beginning, to listening to women. And why? I don't know. It's because... As a psychiatrist, this is what was there. This was the problem for that moment in time. They were the ones who were making a lot of noise within this place and somehow directing or sacrificing themselves to the doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was a kind of... It's not just bourgeois women, but it's a lot of bourgeois women who were, on the one hand, very intelligent, but also their style was completely cramped at that moment of time. So you can't do anything but get sick. Right. You can't have a, you can't have a life. It's in a way, sickness is the only way to communicate. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. He was the one who decided to turn his ear. He writes somewhere, I forget where, maybe in Dora about the decision to be ill, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. As if being ill was, um, a way of acting out or a way of communicating. Yeah. Yeah. Dora's mother has a quote unquote housewife psychosis. Right. She's a compulsive cleaner. Yeah. yeah. She makes everything in the house impossible to enjoy. Right. How did that affect Dora? (laughs) I think it made her crazy. I think she had no woman to look up to. Right. Um, Her mother adored her brother and she was kind of cast aside and her father cast aside her mother as well. Herakay's casting his wife aside. So, I mean, all, all the women are thrown under the bus, basically. Right. And so she has, she's got no direction to go. And, you know, to Freud's credit, he says, like, what do you want? You know, and he also knows that she wants an education and she can't have it. And he, he says from the beginning that she's ferociously intelligent. And I think he's probably one of the only people who saw her as such. I mean, even her father who loved her, wanted her to shut up and um, stop messing up his relationships with his mistress. That's why he brought her to Freud. Yeah. And Freud says, I'm not on your father's team, you know, kind of straight off the bat. He says, I, you know, I know he's lying and all right, where are we going to go from here? Yeah. But I mean, you can also imagine that she has no reason to trust this guy, Freud. Why do you think she rejected him ultimately? I don't know. You know, I mean, he at the very end says that she has a morbid craving for revenge against men. (laughs) Why not? And he he wishes that that he could relieve her of it. He says, you know, you can get your revenge on me and maybe I deserve it. But, you know, there could be more for you than that. And maybe there wasn't really more for her. She wasn't very happy in her life. We know now Um, Although I I did some research into the future of Dora, and you think that she could be cruel to her son, and I think that she wasn't. And I think she um, helped her son have a really interesting career in life. And so I wonder if anything within the treatment with Freud helped her do that, because you could imagine that, like, with a boy who gets to have a life that she doesn't get to have, that he might have, she might have made it difficult for him. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And strangely, Frau K, so, you know, part of what we find out in the case is that she loved Frau K. She wanted a powerful woman in her life, and she saw her father's mistress as powerful. And they had all these sexual conversations, and she kind of loved this woman. 
Right. And Freud says, I missed it. I missed the homosexual aspect of her internal life. I kept insisting on this heterosexuality and I fucked up basically. And she um, started a bridge club with Frau K later in her life. And apparently it was her passion. And the two of them ran this bridge club and bridge bridge is a very intellectual game. And it was probably a place where she could use her intelligence. Yeah. I wonder if they played as partners. Yeah, I know. That's the interesting question. (laughs) Or both. Or both. It's also amazing because Bridge is a four-person game, and the whole thing is this crazy quadrangle. Yeah, between Dora, Eric K., Frau K., and her, her dad. Yeah. I like how her mother is just marginalized in the whole just, thing. Just, like, yeah. a woman. Where do you rate Dora in terms of, in, in, in sort of, in Freud's writings, in terms of readability? Because I found it to be one of the ones that was the most, like, approachable from the start. I think all five cases are incredibly readable. I mean, the Wolfman case is Baroque, but it's also, um, everyone remembers kind of what he does with the various signifiers in it. The woman kneeling on her, the woman's legs while she's kneeling, the number five, the wings of the butterfly. Like he does this incredible kind of work with the, the things that come to light in the Wolfman's life and dreams. But I love reading Dora. I think people love reading Dora. I mean, it, it's a it's a wonderfully readable case. I love reading it. I mean, I've seen it compared to a detective novel, but I think that I agree. It feels like watching a work of deduction go on before your eyes. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. Maybe we should just give a 101 on The Wolfman, since you mentioned him. The Wolfman, I think, is the last case of Freud, and he was like a Russian prince. He was very wealthy. And Freud couldn't cure him. And so he got frustrated and he said, um, your, tr- your treatment will be over <laughs> in six months. You have six more months, that's it. And Freud says, I would never do this again. This sort of like analysis under gunpoint. But he was so frustrated with this guy. Um, and then the whole case is like all the material that the guy like throws onto the table in these last six months. Mm-hmm. And the whole question for him is um, based on this primal scene where he has a dream that, that a window opens and there's five wolves sitting in a tree. And this is a famous drawing that the wolfman did. And it's this scene of like utter horror and castration, like the wolves are going to come, you know, snap your dick off or whatever. And Freud takes this scene and everything that the wolfman had set up until that point and points to this moment in which he must have seen his parents doing it mm-hmm. as a young child. And that's what the scene indicates. It wasn't that the windows opened onto this, but that he opened his eyes from the crib. Mm. And he saw his parents doing it a tergo from behind. And he saw his father's penis appearing and disappearing into the mother, because that's the way that you could see that view. Mm-hmm. And that this determined all of his symptoms from something that would happen to him at five o'clock every day, because it was the V of the shape of the woman's legs oh while she's God. kneeling down. Right to his fetish for watching women clean the floors from behind while they were kneeling, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to an absolute existential terror that he would experience in the face of a butterfly's wings flapping, Mm -hmm. which is also a A V. V. Yeah. Yeah, to the the ears on the wolves, which are also Vs. Yeah. Yeah. See, things like that, the V on the clock and the V in the butterfly is where I think Freud, like, approaches poetry almost in terms of the symbolism that he works with, do you feel like he reaches sometimes? Or do you find that he's right? Both. 
<laughs> you can only be right in reaching. A bit. <laughs> you have to reach to be right. You have to reach to be right. I don't know. I mean, it's always a feeling people have. Like it can't be this. It can't be this beautifully structured. It can't be this poetic. It can't be this neat. It can't be this simple. You know, it can't all tie up like this. And on the one hand, yes, that's true. It's a much messier story. And, you know, Freud's doing these treatments that are six months to a year. It's not like 10 years of a person's life. At the same time that I think as an analyst and in my experience, there are moments of crystallization like this that are part of everyone's life. And I, I think this is the beauty of psychoanalysis is it says your life is structured like a poem or a great piece of literature. Mm-hmm. And you just have to, um, you have to find that. Yeah. I mean, otherwise life is pretty dismal. I started to think of my own analysis as like a collaborative sculpture. I don't know. That was the kind of analogy that worked for me. Mm-hmm. I think we were building like a jungle gym together or something like that. That's nice. I mean, what else would you want to do with an analyst? <laughs> uh, let's go back a little bit. To your own history. So Dora is the first Freud you remember reading. Mm -hmm. And was it like love at first sight for you? I wish I remembered better, but I think it was. Because I I got in my mind the idea that I wanted to go to analysis. And it also gave me the way of, I don't know, thinking about my literature classes, um, which I, I took a lot of. I mean, I, I sort of looked for Freud in literature and philosophy, which is where you find him more um, than you do in psychology departments at this mm-hmm. point in time. And I was less interested in the sort of diagnostic, scientific aspect of it than I was the literary, philosophical. Symbolic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of a kid were you? What kind of a teenager in that you were going to, I mean, you went to, you went to college at 16. What did you like want at that point? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I wanted to get out of Miami was one um, part of it, but I guess I wanted something to make sense. Mm -hmm. I I needed something that was going to make sense of life for me and Studying was really helpful, actually, and I've only really appreciated this part of my life recently, which I realized that I always did my homework. I was a basket case as a kid, and and my life for me was very complicated because nobody was around. But I did my homework. Mm. And so I, I think part of being a psychoanalyst was to keep doing homework. Okay. Um. You know, so, but it was, it was fun homework. It was homework that felt fun and felt like it was giving me a handhold somewhere. So, I mean, once I found it, I think I just kept going and I was young. So. Yeah. What do you think it did to you to, to, to learn about these things at such a young age? Because I don't think, I mean, most, most people who do this, it's at least a couple of years later than they, than you did. And do you think it, did it change you essentially? I mean, it became my whole life, which maybe is a perversion and, um, you know, a little bit mad. I mean, at the age I'm at now, it's like, what have you been, this is what you've been doing for, I don't know, 20 something years. It's a long time. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and there has to be more to life than Freud. <laughs> but that has been the story of my life. Um, so sometimes I wonder about it in that respect, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's idealizing a time that's not mine. So there's, you know, Freud in, you know, between the, before World War One, but certainly between the wars. And then, then there's this idealization of a certain moment in the U.S., um, of psychoanalytic thinking mm -hmm. and a moment in France for me. So I'm, I'm living in some time and place that's not mine. The moment in France being Jacques Lacan? Yeah. When, when in the 60s? In the 60s, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just wild, amazing experiments, interesting moments of thinking happening at that point in time, yeah. which are um, unimaginable today. Why? There's too much legality, there's too much paranoia, there's too much criticism, there's just not the freedom to try mm. to figure out what it means to help another person in all the ways in which one might. I mean, everything's bogged down in paperwork and standards and proof, mm -hmm. and they just tried everything, it feels like to me at that moment. What's an example of something they tried that was... This is this guy, Delini, who um, worked in a hospital with autistic children. And he, you know, because they don't speak, got the idea that he would follow the, their patterns of movement around a hospital where they were, all these psychotic kids were living. Mm -hmm. And he drew them. He drew them, their like wanderings. And he wanted oh, wow. to develop a theory of the ways that they occupy space. I mean, fuck, give me 10 years and a little bit of money and a bunch of psychotic kids and let me do something like that. <laughs> That's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> I've been trying to find someone to fund my hospital, but it's not working out for me. Do you have a dream project like that? I mean, I would. I would. I would. If I could make a hospital and I could take the people who are the worst, most discarded, like, waste of this society and figure out what it means to listen to them and help them. I don't even know what that means, but just that would be the project. Mm -hmm. Do that with, like, some of the smartest people around. But... No one will. No one will give you money for that, or let you even do it legally. Yeah. What are they giving people money for now? I don't know. Pro proven effectiveness therapies that you can execute within fourteen days flat, and that the insurance can make a buck off of, and right. not feel like it's spending too much. Or that's pretty nightmarish. It's nightmarish. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the people who are the worst off are being um, put into nursing homes because we don't have anywhere to put them anymore. Right. Which means they have to lie in bed. Which isn't going to cure anybody of anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, let's talk about Freud and homo and bisexuality. Okay. Um, I found in... In the three essays on sex, on the theory of sexuality and in interpretation of dreams, like a lot of empathy I felt for homosexuals. Mm -hmm. He called them inverts. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? I think it, I'm pretty sure it's a term used at that time that they were called inverts as if they were the inversion of the norm. Of the norm. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think he stuck with that term because he was sneaking i think he's, he's sneaky for it so he's trying to sneak under the censor of the time saying i'm with you like they're inverts they're perverts and uh, then he flips it on its head and he says oh by the way we're all bisexual and this has been going on since greek yeah um since greek antiquity yeah since greek antiquity and he makes a, a plea for that aspect in all of us you know i mean not 
not without, I think, saying, yeah, 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 we know sex and procreation and heterosexuality, like that's all very important. But I mean, if you really look at his <laughs> message, <laughs> that becomes so minimal in the end of the story. I mean, it's as if he's like dangling it there for them to say, okay, let, we'll, we'll take on board your theory of sexuality because you at least admit that it's all going in this direction. Mm-hmm. But by the time he gets there, it's like, it's, I don't know, it's, you know, just like the sprinkles on the top of a giant Sunday, of which there's no way that, like, oral sex and anal sex and all the other kinds of sexualities possible aren't the bigger part of the story, including homosexuality and bisexuality. And you think, how do you get from A to Z? Like, no one gets from A to Z. You know, we get we get lost in the woods. Yeah, we go from A to H, back to C, right? <laughs> over to Y. Um, how did he? Tell me more about the thought that we're all bisexual in some way in our natures. It's interesting because that was that was the main thesis of his quasi analyst Wilhelm Fleiss, the guy who did the nose surgeries, mm-hmm. and he admits that he steals it from him. And Fleece was upset. He said, you don't even, like, credit me for this. And Fred says, yeah, okay, I stole it. Right. Um, so that was, you know, that was his f- friend-mentor love um, in the early kind of minting of his theories. And so he started with the idea of bisexuality. And he can ground it biologically because, you know, we, we have both in the beginning and then they're only slowly differentiated into the whatever, what ends up being masculine and feminine to a certain degree. But then we understand all of the variations and there's intersex and there's hermaphrodism and so, and so on and so forth. So he's able to ground it biologically, but then make it a psychic mechanism. Right. And that was very important to him. I mean, to an extent for it has to find um, something within the biological anatomical sphere to then make it what would be a metapsychological category. And how does it function in that way? Is he talking about, among other things, romantic love? He's talking about romantic love. He's talking about the fact that we all love a potentially a mother and a father. Um, and that the love for both of them is complicated in terms of what one eventually wants. Um, he's saying that for a long time, you probably experience both and how you differentiate differentiate out of that. Any particular love for a gender is very, very complicated. You have infantile experiences. You have sexual feelings about your peers and your adolescence. And then from that, how do you pick a long-term love partner? And even within that long-term love partner, you will love masculine and feminine aspects of them, that you already play out your bisexuality with the person that you love. You don't love them necessarily as a man or as a woman. Right. Did he see it as an acculturation thing? Like that there's many, many iterations over time? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. See, that feels very progressive for his time to me. Incredibly progressive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's, he'd be down with all of the fluidity of Yeah, today. that was a question that I had for you. I mean, yeah, what, what would Freud make of the current landscape in terms of gender? I, I think he'd be right there. I mean, I you know, there's, there's a lot of arguments within the, the kind of trans discipline um, because there's, a, there's aspects of today's culture that vie, actually, for, like, identities as man or woman. Whereas Freud, I think, is very queer, Mm-hmm. 
I think there's something incredibly queer about Freud. And it's not me who's saying this. There's many, many queer theorists readings of Freud that are important. Um, but I think that the absolute diversity of sexualities is what he's saying and what he's actually saying in, I know one of your favorites, civilization is discontents. He mm-hmm. says that there should come a day in which we have a civilization that can recognize the absolute multiplicity of people's pleasures and sexualities. And until we have that, we will keep trying to prescribe things onto people that will make them sick. What do we know about Freud's own sexuality? And he was celibate for a lot of his life, right? Whether it was voluntary or involuntary, I don't know. It's really, it's a strange story. I mean, he... I always remember Lacan called his wife a tart, and I still don't know what he meant by that. And Lacan spoke German, so he's probably able to read the letters between Freud and Martha that have only recently been translated and I haven't been able to read. And there's, like, voluminous letters between Freud and his wife. Mm. Um, So I don't know the intricacies of their relationship with one another, but they had all these kids. Six kids? I think six, Six. And he didn't want, he was poor. (laughs) Six kids was a lot. He didn't want to get her pregnant again. So he, I think he just kind of stopped having sex at a certain moment. And then she's busy with the kids. And so in his forties, which is when he's actually inventing psychoanalysis, he's already writing that his sex life is over. He's like, Oh, I'm old and my sex life's over. So you got, you have a lot of these letters, which people have picked up on. Mm -hmm. um, Relatable. Yeah, as if, and they're funny. I mean, he's funny about it. Yeah. He's sort of like, you know, what's left for a man like me? You know, right. the, the, um, the blood is tame at this point in my life. And you think, Jesus Christ, you're only like 45 years old. Um, but then he was surrounded by all of these women who became analysts that mm. adored him. And he had very, very libidinal relationships with them, which you can tell from the letters and how over-involved he was with them. Yeah, like um, Marie Bonaparte. Marie Bonaparte, um, Lou Andreas Salome, um, you know, I mean, even like the HD, you can tell that he has like an incredible relationship with her. Even the though she, yeah. Oh, wow. She was his patient and she wrote um, a book called Tribute to Freud about her analysis with him. Oh, wow. How was that? It's incredible. I mean, she was wild. She was wild. She was wild. And he's just kind of hanging out with her, trying to help her as best that he can. And she starts writing poetry again because she was in a serious writer's block, which is why she went to see him. And Mm. so, you know, we don't know what happened. He didn't write about it. We have her tribute to him. But he obviously helped her because she went on to produce massive amounts of poetry after that point in time. Yeah, Um, Just before we gloss too fast over it, we're talking about the poet H.D., the initials H.D. What was her name? Hilda Doolittle? Hilda Doolittle. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't get talked about enough now. No. No. Yeah. No. There's also this, this story that he had an affair with his wife's sister and lots of people who like to talk about where her bedroom was in the, in the Freud household in Vienna. Okay. But I don't know. Who knows? Do you think he was finding a sexual outlet in his work? Oh, for sure. And he said that. He, he said did. as much, yeah. He said, I, you know, I just have put this into sublimation completely. And he, you have to remember that he needed to make money, <laughs> you know, for his six children. Um, so he worked with patients from, I don't know, like six in the morning till nine o'clock at night, like some ridiculous amount of time, you know, with your typical kind of bourgeois, like long lunch. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote from nine o'clock at night till midnight or one in the morning every night. Mm-hmm. 
So he works like all around the clock. Yeah. Is this where cocaine comes into the picture? No, because the cocaine is early. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just imagining working around the clock without cocaine. Um, should we even bother talking about Freud and cocaine? That's another big myth, another big sort of like thing that comes up. Freud was a cokehead, which I don't think he really was. But he explored it first as a physician, right? Mm-hmm. He, it's anesthetic properties. He was interested in its anesthetic properties, and he kind of missed the boat on it. He knew it, and then someone else kind of brought it to the table, and he felt like he had totally missed his chance to become a famous person, which is hilarious given what turned what happened. Right. You know, like that guy. <laughs> he thought he'd be a footnote, save for right. this cocaine thing. Yeah. 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 Um, but he gave it to everybody, and he said it'll put some color in your cheeks. And um, then his friend became an addict and died. And then he renounced his relationship to cocaine. And it's actually interesting. The cocaine part of it is interesting to me, at least, for two reasons. That there's that friend who died and which he felt guilty and responsible for. Mm -hmm. And then there's the patient who the crazy mentor, quasi-analyst of Freud, did an operation on her nose and almost killed. And so there were two deaths of which he, one could imagine a kind of feeling of malpractice that haunted him as he first became a psychoanalyst. And when you read the interpretation of dreams, um, a lot of what you can read into Freud's wrestling with creating psychoanalysis, his place as a doctor... What he feels is utterly transgressive um, and difficult to accept about what he's doing. And then this history of a feeling of having failed mm -hmm. and having almost killed a couple people is the story of the birth of psychoanalysis. I mean, you know, and, and he asks himself, what kind of doctor am I? What kind of father am I? Like, what am I responsible for? And what am I doing treating these sick people and creating this theory that nobody wants to listen to about the meaning of dreams and the importance of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be in the gutter. Like I am just like, this is ridiculous to be this person. And then there's a megalomanic side of it, which right. you could almost hear like the cocaine where he says like, I'm going to be the discoverer of the unconscious. And one day there will be a plaque. Right. The plaque. I love that. Yeah. He said there should someday be, he's writing to somebody. I forget to who. Fleece. To said, fleece. Yeah. He says, do you saying think? One day there'll be a plaque saying here is where Sig Freud discovered the important, discovered the importance of dreams or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah. Discovered yeah. the meaning of dreams. It's pretty grandiose. Yeah. It's really grandiose. Yeah. But I mean, don't you think that anyone at this at the precipice of whatever creation and discovery, you know, kind of crossing a certain line that hasn't been crossed, doesn't on the one hand have to be absolutely grandiose and absolutely depressed and guilty? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the artistic temperament too. Yeah. 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 But and it also speaks to something the knot of the unconscious. Can I go there? What were the components of dreams for Freud? I know that there is like the somatic, the the previous day, childhood memories. Oh my god, I always forget all these. So there's um, the day residue. It's a term that I love, which is um, that your dream shuffles up, that picks things from the day before you have it. 
But it's very important to him that what it selects from the day residue connect with something old, as is Freud. So the current moment always has to latch on to what's the most salient from the past. You know, and it, it forms like a beeline, you know, like a vzz. Mm. So you could start with the day residue and you will go back to the very beginning. And that's the infantile memories. And it's often... Um, that aspect of the day residue is coalescing around something that probably had a major somatic impact of some kind that you didn't realize. What kind of a somatic impact? You know, like what, what does it do? What, what could be something that happens to the body that would, that would figure into this? I don't know. You have so many feelings during the day. I mean, it can be something that you don't even notice, but you responded kind of viscerally to something that you, you know, was off. Off scene. You Could know? it be like getting bit by a mosquito? It could be getting bit by a mosquito. I don't know where I got that. I guess because I've been getting bit by mosquitoes a lot at work lately. It could be like some woman walked by and you thought, like, look at her dumb, ugly shoes. You know, I mean, it, you know, it's something like that. Or you have That's like some, somatic, though? Yeah, because you're like, you get disgusted or you like get, you know, or you were envious or whatever was your problem in that moment. But it was enough to make you look at it and then put it away because it's a, you know, for him, what's also important is that it's something that has an impact, but that's broken off. You have like, you have what you're concerned with in a given day. You're ruminating about whatever it is. And that's probably the last thing that's going to make it into a dream mm -hmm. because the dream picks what are called the broken experiences. And then it tries to complete them and completes them also by taking you down the rabbit hole all the way back. Um, and so it, it's those experiences that the dream picks up on what, what consciousness left aside and left, um, unelaborated as it were. So, you know, it's also a very funny picture because all of your, all of the conscious work that you do, all of the ruminating is pointless with respect to the general organization of the unconscious and the creation of a dream, which is probably the most pure creation of the mind. This is why it's the royal road to the unconscious, because it's, it's what happens without you. Mm. Why are dreams so distorted? According to Freud, to hide what they need to hide from the part of your mind that censors and prohibits and inhibits and says no. So it has to put all of these pieces together <laughs> what happened to you during the day, what's been happening to you your whole life. It has to, to find a kind of satisfaction, image, um, fulfillment of wish and desire, but it has to do it so that you don't notice. Mm -hmm. And it has to do it without waking you up because what the dream's job is, is to keep you asleep. So if you are satisfying a forbidden wish, you would get anxiety and then you would wake up mm -hmm. and that's a failed dream mm -hmm. if it manages to wake you up. So that's why they're so distorted, quote unquote. And he called that the secondary revision or the manifest content. The manifest content is sort of what's on the surface. Right. Latent content is our interpretation of it. What it's, what, yeah, where, where the, the latent content is everything underneath that, that then tells you what the wish was that was mm -hmm. fulfilled. In the dream. How do you feel about the interpretation of dreams as a piece of writing? I, what, something that I like about it <laughs> is how he spends so much of the first section just like lining up everybody else's arguments and then just kind of eviscerating some of them. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like he's on a mission, sort of. It feels very, not petty, but um, 
it feels like a like a war kind of because <laughs> that's the for those who don't know the first section of the interpretation of dreams is just basically here's the landscape here's what everybody else thinks and here's why I think it's wrong. Yeah. Right. But yeah, and on a writing level or on a structural level, what do you think of the book? I mean, maybe he's also showing off a little. He's like, yeah, I know. You know, I, I, I've got the lay of the land. You right. Know, I'm not just coming in here with my like whimsical idea. I did my homework. I did my homework. Um, and then he, he does give it a little bit of credit at the end, maybe also a little arrogant, where he says, um, in saying that the dream is a fulfillment of a wish, I guess I'm not saying anything that everyone hasn't already said insofar as they wanted dreams to be prophetic mm. because your wishes do determine your future. Mm. So we're saying the same thing if you were going to go in the prophetic direction mm. of dream interpretation. Mm. As a piece of writing, it's crazy. I mean, it's very hard to read. It's all over the place. And it's like thousands of examples. He just like piles them on, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're just like like sifting through a million examples of people's dreams, which give you a very strange picture of turn of the century Vienna. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pettiness, actually, if you want to talk <laughs> about petty. is people are enormously petty. Yeah. At least in the circles that he ran in or the yeah. world that he knew. Yeah. Yeah. You recommended to me when I was talking about reading it with you a few months ago to just skip a bunch of it. Yeah. Which parts would you skip if you're a lay person, let's say? I think you read the beginning. You read the great specimen dream. It's also very beautiful. Um, Is that the dream of Irma's injection? Dream of Irma's injection. I will um, pitch here today on this podcast um Jacques Lacan's reading of Irma's injection which is probably the most stunning interpretation of Freud mm. I find Lacan's so hard to read this one you can read it's very easy okay he says um he just gives you this way through it he says that he says Freud was a tough cookie and so at the moment that he looks in Irma's mouth and he sees the horrifying white spermy thing in her throat he doesn't wake up because he doesn't wake up, he's, he's able to evoke all of the opinion, dogma, chatter that was hounding him in his invention of psychoanalysis, all the opinions of everyone around him, which you have with all the doctors who say, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. Right. He says they're like a clown car. And he cuts through it. He cuts through his anxiety so that another voice can be heard. And that's the moment that he says the writing is on the wall. And he gets the formula for Irma's illness, trimethylamine, which he says means that the, the dream is there to be read. It's a nonsense formula, trimethylamine. It's not anything. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a made-up um, substance. It's a made-up chemical. It's a made-up word, even. Yeah. If you deduced it, it just means 333, which is funny thinking of all the threes in Freud. And it, it says, read the desire in the dream. Um, of which then the whole book goes on from there. And the, the, it opens the dream book, but it's also the last dream that he had. And he desperately needed a dream that he said, I can analyze in full to show how analysis of a dream works. So he was waiting and waiting and waiting for this dream that he could put as the centerpiece of it. And it's also the dream of him being a doctor who says that my cure is not medical. It's not, um, it's not chemical. It's psychoanalysis. It's about wish. It's about desire. It's about the life of the mind. It's not any of these other things that everybody wants it to be. And I need to be forgiven for 
for saying this to you. <laughs> Forgive me for pointing out that the dream's meaning is sexual desire. Why does he want forgiveness for that? Because he thinks that no one wants to hear it, and maybe they didn't. Do you... I mean, this is really... I'm reducing it a lot here, but do you believe, as he writes, that every dream is about a wish fulfilled? Yes, I do. Why? How? Help me. Because I think... um, Again, maybe it's one of these brutal things that the psychoanalyst has to impose, but the idea is that you have to, what you do in terms of understanding a dream and its construction is to find what in it is seeking to rise to the surface. And the only thing that we can imagine rising to the surface is a wish or a desire or some search for satisfaction. And the articulation of that satisfaction, the beautiful articulation of it, is what the dream magically does. And so that's the way that we have to read it, and even a nightmare, for example. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the most, I think, helpful, almost curative, simple things an analyst can do is show the patient that even though they're having these horrible, plaguing nightmares that seem like the worst possible productions of a human mind. You think, why do I have to go to sleep and be tortured like this? Is to show that it's secretly hiding a wish inside of it. You know, such as the distortion of which your mind is capable of showing that like something very simple that you might want in your life has to take this form for you to allow it to exist for you. And you often find in that the way that then some of that anxiety can go away. Mm-hmm. Why do we have to distort our wishes like this? <laughs> you showed me that that amazing 1970s introduction. Oh, uh, like, yeah, I have a little I... book called Freud A to Z that I... <laughs> it's um, a little embarrassing, but it's also kind of cool. No, I like it. And one of the things I saw is that we still haven't solved the problem of why we can't just enjoy ourselves. Right. Why, why do wishes have to be so obscured? Why are we ashamed of what we want? Are we embarrassed for wanting something? I think we're embarrassed for wanting things. I think as a child, you want so much, and so much of childhood is not getting what you want. (laughs) You know, you live in that tension, and that's like the very core of the formation of the mind, and there's nothing we can do about that. And we're helpless for so long, and uh, the way that people speak is just full of um, prescriptions, Even when you say that someone shouldn't have prescriptions, it's a prescription. Yeah. And so you live in a world in which you're constantly being told to think things or do things or not do things. And so there's no, there's no direct path. And the the thing about the dream that Freud thought was so beautiful was that it's trying to find the most economical, beautiful path possible at that given point in time. Mm -hmm. And so once you start to appreciate that, not necessarily just the wish or the object of desire or whatever that might be, but the ways in which your mind articulates it, however horrifying, that that's, that's something. That's something more than what the world generally tells you about what's possible for you. Do you analyze your own dreams? When I had them, having a young infant, I have no dreams right now, which is so sad. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, just my sleep is so interrupted. But um, whenever I have one, that's I'm very, very happy. I feel like it's like 
the greatest achievement. <laughs> I had a dream about ash toast once, which I thought was so economical. Ash toast? Yeah, someone made me eat ash toast. And um, it was like someone had told me that, you know, like they could they, they do things with people's remains, their ashes. Mm-hmm. And so I was being served ash toast. Oh, so human remains in the form of toast. Human remains in the form of toast. But it was also perfect because toast means to be dead. So it was like just the perfect object. I also think of toasted as meaning like to be inebriated. All right. (laughs) So you were getting high on ashes too? I was getting high on ashes too. Wow. I've got a dream I want to run by you, but not on the record. Do you remember when you first read the interpretation of dreams? I don't. I remember when I sat down to to probably teach um, chapter seven, which is considered the you know I mean Freud himself says that it's that to to understand um, how he's going to create a metapsychology out of the interpretation of dreams, meaning a beginning structure for the way that a psyche is organized, works, so on and so forth. This is the cornerstone of psychoanalysis, so that's considered probably one of the most important things to read. And I remember sitting down to figure out how to explain this to people, this chapter. And um, those little diagrams that he makes with the reflex arc, um, finding that so beautiful and simple and charming. So the idea, I guess, for your listeners is that, you know, the whole idea is that you would respond to something in the world You'd, you'd have a perception of something, and then you would react to it. So you'd if the hot, then you'd move your hand away. Mm-hmm. And Freud says, um, you know, given what we understand about the dream, we close off consciousness, right? So you're 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 not conscious when you're asleep, and you also don't have the possibility of reacting to anything, even though we know that things happen around you, like an alarm clock can enter into your dream, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You close this off, and then you are going backwards in the direction of perception, which is why the dreams have such vividness, that they're more real than real life, because you're going back to almost the the origin of perception. And by virtue of this, we have to then understand that perception and consciousness and conscious response to, like, you know, having a, a conscious response to the world are separated from one another. And in separating those two things, you have the basic foundation of the Freudian mind, which is that you're perceiving a lot more than you're conscious of. Then on the level of what you perceive, how is it organized? How is all of this that we're not conscious of organized within the mind? And that's when he begins to create the structure of the unconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And no one up until that point in time had split perception and consciousness from one another, all the psychologists or, you know, whatever people who are theorizing the mind or philosophers. Yeah. Are there portions of the unconscious mind other than dreams that are worth looking at? What else comprises the unconscious mind? Well, for Freud, it's um, childhood memories, which are held under repression. Why don't we remember much before the age of five, six years old? When, if you've met a three, four, five, six-year-old, they are a person with opinions and personality and responses and memories. Yeah. You know, and then something happens. There's like a, it goes into a lockbox. So there's memories. There's um, symptoms. 
and dreams. So those are the three things that he connects in his very early life, those, those three things. They also go along with the productions of the unconscious, which are dreams, jokes, and mistakes. Oh, right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love those three things together. I love them too. Yeah. What does he mean by mistakes? Are we talking about slips of the tongue, for example? Yeah, but anything, I mean, forgetting something, like when you forget your umbrella at the restaurant, there's an unconscious motivation. When you forget to bring your wife home, the thing that she asked you for, you're making, <laughs> you're, there's an unconscious motivation. <laughs> what did Freud say about jokes? Oh, God, the joke book is so great. Um, he says that we're satisfying, that the origin of jokes is the deferment of sexual and sadistic enjoyment. So we have to defer it. So the first joke was smut, where instead of, you know, trying to come on to a woman, you just said things that you were going to do to her in front of her. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first joke was smut. And then they get, you know, more complex and interesting. They hide the smut that. more. <laughs> they hide the smut more. Um, he says you can't consent to a joke, which he finds interesting because it shows you the unconscious because you laugh before you understand. And this is what's so important to him is that someone tells you the joke, you crack up laughing. It's only later that you figure out what's funny or what you understood about it. Yeah. Um, so for him, it's like pure unconscious mechanism. And the person who creates the joke has to almost like a dream, take something that's forbidden and hide it within a, something that would be acceptable, mm. but it would also cross the barrier of the other person's unconscious because you got to get at them to make them laugh um, without them knowing it. So all of this sort of dodge and chase aspect of jokes and, and laughing is, is really important for him. Jokes are like weird little social contracts. I mean, also you, you do, you joke with people and then the two of you are in a pact to yeah. do this thing together and not really say it. Yeah, I mean, like racist right. jokes. Also, the, um, the the comicness of our bodies is a big part of joking for Freud. How so? He says that it goes back to what it must have been like for us as infants, where we can't do anything. I mean, it's why we like slapstick comedy, for example, when people slip on the ground and fall down and all of this. And that's like mm -hmm. the reality of a child is someone who falls down all uh -huh. the time. And that, you know, this reality is shameful you know, something that we, we don't want to know about as adults. We want to pretend that we're masters of the universe. Do you know what your earliest memory is? I, I feel like that's more like you don't know, but you decide that something's going to be your earliest memory. Well, interestingly, in Freud's paper on screen memories, meaning your earliest memory, he, um, it's also a paper about him. He pretends it's about someone else. Oh, but it's really him. It's really him. That's great. And, um, he shows that it has links to what must have been an infantile experience, but it's actually more about the present day. So he does the reverse, you know, so the dream that goes back to the past, the screen memory that's supposed to be about the past is actually about the present. So his screen memory, which is supposed to be his youngest moment where he rips these flowers out of a girl's hand, she starts crying and then he and his friend run to the nanny and then the nanny gives them bread to calm them all down. Mm. And he says it's obviously a sexual memory. He deflowered her. <laughs> of course. Right. You know, and then he's given the bread. Right. Um, but once he gets to bread and butter, he realizes that it's screening out what was at issue for him when he remembered it, which was that he was poor and he didn't have any money. Mm. So it's funny. All of a sudden, it's not about the past. It's, it's about the absolute moment in which you decide that that was your earliest memory. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember yours? 
I have a memory that feels like it was in the house that I was only in until I was like three years old where I was drawing on the, um, on the wall with crayons and I like knew that what I was doing was wrong, but I was doing it, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Why not? I don't know. I guess I could know that it was wrong at that age. Yeah. 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 It's something like I'm doing it. I'm waiting for the punishment. <laughs> Doing it knowing that you'll be punished. Doing it knowing that I'll be punished. I also remember going to the house that my parents were building at that time that I would then move into and grow up in. And um, the bathroom wasn't working because it was under construction and having to defecate into a bucket. I don't know if it's, I don't, I don't, there's something about it that's off. Like it was in a side of the house, the garage and where my nanny lived. And it's something about that side of the house where I would end up spending all my time because my family wasn't around and the other side was the family side. And I, I was horrified by that side. And there's something about like this, there's one side of the house where I was taken care of by the nanny mm -hmm. and the other side of the house where no one ever was. And I was deeply terrified of that side of the house. Yeah. Yeah. But also like, this is that side of the house where you're with the nanny is like where the shit is. I suppose there are sort of big Freudian things that we should talk about that people um, hear about in culture from as early as they can remember, probably, but they don't really know necessarily what Freud meant. So these are very basic for you, but if you can shed some light on them, it would be helpful, I think. Let's talk about the Oedipal complex. Where, first of all, do you believe in it? <laughs> you say that with a little bit of coyness or reluctance or something. I don't know. I mean, there's like a whole anti-Oedipal movement. Yeah. I still think it's very important. Can you define it? Sure. So it's interesting. It's it, He talks about it first in the interpretation of dreams in the section called on the deaths of persons of dreams about the deaths of persons of whom one is fond. And he says that there's, there's dreams where someone dies and it's not about that at all. <laughs> it's about something else. Mm -hmm. Sex. Sex, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, narcissistic injury, who knows. And then there are dreams that are absolutely about the death of someone. And it's not a, just about their death and their loss, but about the fact that you wanted them to die. And then he brings in the whole Oedipus complex and he says that um, in this story, Oedipus kills his father and marries his mother and has children with her and then finds out the truth and then tears his eyes out. And he says this story is so important in the history of civilization because um, we, all, we all felt this at some time. We all, we all wanted what Oedipus wanted, which is in fact something Jocasta says to Oedipus. Jocasta's Oedipus's mom. Jocasta's Oedipus's mom, and he's trying to figure out the truth. And she says, many men have dreamed of the life that you have, and you should not ask any further about it. You mm -hmm. should not try to find out the truth. Don't examine your life. Yeah, don't examine your life. Just enjoy what you have. Many people want, want it, <laughs> which is funny. Um, and then you have the sense that she knows that she's sleeping with her son when yeah. she says that. 
Um, and then the other thing he brings up is Hamlet at that moment. And he says, the only way to understand Hamlet um, and why we love Hamlet as much as we do is because what Hamlet can't do, <laughs> which is kill his stepfather, um, the great mystery, which is why can't he just do this? He's got the proof. The father said, you know, whatever this guy murdered me is mm-hmm. because the guy has done what he wanted to do, which is to kill his father and marry his mother. Mm-hmm. And he says, I am the first person to have discovered the meaning of Hamlet. It's another Freud arrogant moment. And um, that's where he smuggles the theory in. People get upset because it's very heteronormative, you know, um, the boy wants to marry his mother and kill his father. The girl wants to kill her mother and marry her father. But you have to realize in Freud that it's never quite so simple. You know, he says there's an inverted Oedipus complex or a negative Oedipus complex. There's always the reverse feelings. And you have both sets of feelings at a given time. Or what we're kind of talking about is you have infantile sexuality that leads up to an investigation of the conditions of one's life and why one was born or made Mm -hmm. or brought into existence in which you have to question the DNA that made you. There's got to be two people somewhere. It doesn't matter in what form it takes, if it's two moms or two dads or one mom or one dad or a sperm bank or whatever. One has to ask a question about why one has come to exist. What was the desire that made me? Mm -hmm. And that the child in their Oedipal intensity asking these questions is reaching a kind of pitch fever sexuality that's trying to place his body and existence in time and space. What am I for you as the person with this body, these genitals? Why did you make me? What is my future? And it's as if everything leads up to this apex of questioning interrogation and then gets swept under the rug and then you go to school and you play with your little friends and all these things happen called shame disgust and morality all of the affects that go against sexuality sexual reproduction intense bodily feelings which latency age kids hate (laughs) latency is from like six to like pre-adolescence yeah Uh uh-huh yeah where he says you don't want to know anything about the sexual stuff or you only do it kind of undercover, not in the absolutely open mm-hmm. way that the young child does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until puberty hits, which we started with. Yes, and then everything goes haywire. And then everything goes haywire. And part of the reason it goes haywire is because you got to get away from these people, this family that made you, and you don't still understand why or what you're there for. you got to get away from them, but they're all you know. And all that stuff is being stirred up by the sexuality that is biologically waking up. Going further back, though, pre-Oedipal, does it go oral, anal, phallic? Yeah. That's sort of the order that things happen in. Yeah. What are the hallmarks of each of those? If you can, if you can summarize them in just a few words. Well, orals, all the pleasures of the mouth... Breastfeeding. Breastfeeding, eating, um, sucking. I mean, children, the child psychoanalyst Spitz said that the child sees with their mouth, Mm. um, which I have a one-year-old and everything goes in the mouth. And that's how they examine the whole world. Mm 
um, her first symbolic play, which, you know, in my narcissistic investment in my child feels very early, we feed everything. What do you mean we feed everything? Like all the animals in the room, all the stuffed animals, all the oh, little like, statues in the let's house. Let's feed the we, zebra, let's yeah, feed let's, the baby doll, let's yeah. feed, yeah. But with absolute pleasure, she feeds me, she feeds everyone around her, and mm-hmm. that's also what's being done to her. She's constantly being, things are being shoved in her mouth all yeah. the time. Yeah, um, And it's a great pleasure. I mean, if if you were an oral person like myself with the drinking and the smoking and all all of it, yeah. You know, to be in this world with the child is like, I don't know, it's delicious. It's like a playground. It's a playground. Yeah. Um, and, and then, 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 anal. then the anal. <laughs> the anal. Um, the anal, the holding in, the giving out, the demand, though. So for Freud, the orality is your pure demand on the world. Like, give me, you know, mm-hmm. and the difficulty with the limits of that. Mm-hmm. Um the anal comes, and it's not your demand upon the world, but the world's demand upon you and your body, which is true. There's that idea of the feces being a kind of gift that's taken away from you. Yes, that you that you um, poop for mommy. Uh huh. So it's the first time. It's it's not the first time but it's a, it's a it's a hallmark first time that someone comes and tells you to do something with your body that isn't your natural inclination if you want to go to the bathroom you just go to the bathroom in your diaper or wherever you want or whatever time and so then a whole world comes and says no you can't do this whenever you want you're going to put it in the toilet and then all of the stuff around that that it's dirty or smelly which the child doesn't inherently feel Animals don't feel it, and all of the shame and all of the hiding away in the bathroom and all of the pleasure that's then cordoned off in certain ways. You know, okay, you can't go to the bathroom wherever you want, but you can sit on the toilet for an hour, should you like. I mean, some people might allow that kind of pleasure to go on and on and on for a child. Right, right. Um, And then some children get really invested in the doing it when they want to, not when you want them to. So they'll like hold their feces to the point that they're in pain because they don't want to go when you want them to. They only want to go when they want to. Yeah. Anyways, all kinds of strange things happen around that, but it is the first kind of hallmark demand of the world upon the body. And there's also the element that he comes, it comes up a lot in, in, in his writing of like the pure physical pleasure of shitting. Yeah. He seems to have a little bit of a fixation on that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. People have a lot of anal symptoms. I mean, there's a whole world of... You would be amazed how much ritual there is around shitting and, like, the way that people build up a whole, like, schedule and system of needs and things that they Mm -hmm. have to do around going to the bathroom. And it's so secret, too. It's so secret, it's so secret. And on the one hand, it can be admitted, but all of the pleasure and shame is um, there. And for him, there's nothing, there's no, there's no natural eating and there's no natural shitting for human beings. We don't know how to eat. We, don't, we can't find any limits within it. We can't figure out the right way to do it. We do it too much. We do it too little. We, get, we have all kinds of problems around it, eating disorders and so on. And then with shitting too. I mean, how many ads are there about being regular? A lot. Yeah, which just shows you that we have no idea. We don't know how to shit. We don't know how to shit. And then we have the phallic stage. Then we have the phallic stage. Which I think is the one I understand the least. I don't know what that says about me. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, this is this is the part of the trickiest territory in Freud, but um, basically he's saying that the presence of the male genitalia, as opposed to what might seem like an absence with respect to the female genitalia, is um, a remarkable fact for children to behold. That there's something... When you're looking at a male, there's something, and when you're looking at a female, there's that thing isn't there. Right. Even though there is something there. There is something there. That thing isn't there, and that lack of can be illuminating, shocking, et cetera. Yeah. And um, the fact of erection, this Mm. thing that does this whole thing, um, is somehow fascinating for children, against what's confusing about female genitalia in terms of what's there, what goes on there, where does it go on there. And then the pregnancy, which would be a kind of phallic manifestation, the the outwardness of the body appears only at a certain point in pregnancy, but that becomes the phallic equivalent. Because it's like a protrusion? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a presence as opposed to something bordering on absence. Yeah. And that it's not as if there isn't also all of the privileges accorded to men that are confused also with the fact that there is a presence with respect to their genitalia as opposed to the absence for the woman. And so these are like layered cultural understandings upon anatomical facts. So he has a very famous article, The Psychical Consequences of the Anatomical Distinction for the Sexes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's as if Freud's creating a worldview in which somehow this presence accorded to male genitalia is also a huge part of the confusion that is patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so funny to you? It's so funny because it's it's like it's like an aberration, uh-huh. a kind of a biological aberration builds up an entire world, like a structural framework for the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he means it that ridiculously. He's sort of saying, look at this. Look at this structural Mm -hmm. aberration that has created hundreds and hundreds years of inequality and misery. This is also where another Freudian idea that gets talked about a lot that is misunderstood, I think, is um, the idea of penis envy. Mm -hmm. Right. So what is penis envy, really? I mean, penis envy is just that conflation, the conflation of power the presence of male genitalia and masculinity and activity and dominance. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a woman and you think, you know, why is my brother treated so well? Or why is he given so many more opportunities than I am? I want what he has. What does he have? A penis? (laughs) What does he have that I don't? What does he have that I don't have? And you make this kind of silly answer for yourself. It's not the end of the story, but it is... The beginning of a kind of assumption, but for Freud, there's something concrete and ridiculous, which is that the the phallic protrusion is also very present in the kinds of things that we associate with dominance and power and patriarchal civilization, like giant buildings and fast cars and, mm-hmm. and this kind of phallic appreciation. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it's oral, anal, phallic, he doesn't say genital. And he did have the category of genital sexuality, but genital sexuality is different from phallic sexuality. Phallic sexuality is this mistake. Mistake? This mistake of appreciating the phallus as the ultimate form of sexuality. Mistaken perception. Yeah. Yeah. Does he talk at all about 
how much the phallus appears in like primitive art ever? I think he does. Yeah. I'm like hard pressed to say where, but it would probably be part of totem and taboo. I mean, there's the figure Pan who always has like the Mm -hmm. giant erection. Yeah. Pan's always got a boner. (laughs) How did knowing Freud so well influence you as a parent while raising your son, who's a young adult now, and like, how do you think it will influence you raising your daughter, who's one now? What did Freud do to your parenting? I mean, there's a long history of people saying that shrinks kids are the craziest, and I think that's probably um, in part true. But I think the mistakes, the mistake that a lot of psychoanalysts made with patients, they also made with their children, which was to overinterpret them and um you know you certainly have like memoirs from shrinks kids saying that their parents interpreted every stupid thing that they did and sort of they were horrified and didn't feel like they had their own mind so i've really tried not to do that with um my son i hope he will forgive me if i ever overstepped a line although no i'm not gonna say Oh, no. Now I want to know. You're going to embarrass him. Yeah, well, maybe off the record you can tell me. Okay, I'll tell you off the record. But I, also being a child psychoanalyst and having actually started with children first and then adults later, really love um, the pre-Oedipal, Oedipal period because children are so wonderfully open. Mm. I mean, there's an openness that you lose with the latency age child. And so I really enjoy (laughs) childhood. Um, And so if it helped me, it helped me do that. Because I think, you know, the most of the parents that I treat are just completely terrified. And what having a child stirs up of your own infantile sexuality, um, I think, is very hard for parents to deal with. They, you know, they want to... They want to put all the stops on it right away. And I just, you know, I try to enjoy it as much as possible and to try to take all of that um, terror of finding the limits for a child out of my experience of parenting, which doesn't mean that you don't have to find the limits, but that became part of the fun of it. You know, how do we find this together? It's finding the limits together rather than having predefinitions of the right. limits. Yeah. And being really anxious. Right, right. What's the most important takeaway from Freud regarding infantile sexuality, do you think? I mean, I think the fact of its existence is the most... I mean, he does something very simple and very beautiful, which he says, you know, this has been ignored. You know, we act as if sexuality doesn't begin until you're 15 Mm -hmm. or whatever. In part, that's understandable because we have repressed it in ourselves. We don't remember it. Right. You know, so... It was kind of a moment where he's saying, okay, you know, the lid's off the pot. Now what are we going to do? Yeah. And I don't know. I still think that we have to, we have, we have work to do here. I mean, I, you know, having a daughter now, I'm like looking at parenting books and God help me, um, you know, like Instagram, parent Instagrams. (laughs) Oh God, you look at that stuff? No, no. I don't know why. They they got my algorithm. But no, I mean, I also look at it from like a quasi-anthropological perspective. And it's not fun the way that they, it's not interesting. It's not paying attention to this stuff. Mm -hmm. What is it instead? It's just rules. It's just the ideas of what's proper Uh still. 
and people acting as if they know the answer. And the answer is really banal. You know, feed your child at 10 to 5. I mean, okay, that's how you want to be a parent. <laughs> well, I think there's so much more in the realm of like eating and pleasure and the togetherness of eating and what it has to do with taking the other in. Like, there's so much more that one could do there to enjoy what's really quite difficult um, everyday life with a child. Mm -hmm. You're going to get burnt out really fast if you start trying to prescribe schedules and proper modes of behavior. You're going to hate your child for the fact that they're not falling in line living up to it yeah eros versus thanatos mm -hmm. which is love versus death in the very simplistic way but the death drive really fascinates me where do we see the death drive show up in everyday life well let me let me just backtrack a minute because Freud said that you, um, he had to separate this life-death, love-death thing um, for the sake of theorizing and explaining what he needed to explain um, about the way that pleasure functions in the human being. So it was, it was a it was for the purposes of his theorizing to separate them, but in reality, he says you never find them. Um, separately. They're always together. They're always tied together. They're always tied together. So you always have a bit of both, mm -hmm. let's say. Love, life, and death. <laughs> Love, life, and death. Um, but his point about the death drive and what was important to him was to basically just say that we were self-destructive as a species. <laughs> and it follows the, the general point of his that human sexuality is denatured. It's it, it, it. There's no there's no natural pathways for it. That it, it has to find forms for itself. It has to create new forms, which is basically what he says is civilization. Civilization, right? And that we don't know whether the civilization is going in a direction of life or death, or it seems to be admixtures of both. Ever see? I'm telling you, it's the death drive. Let's just keep going. <laughs> Let's just keep going. People, you're going to have to hear a leaf blower. And so all of our self-destructiveness for him was a manifestation of the death drive getting the upper hand. Mm -hmm. And this would be war. Um, this would be trashing our planet. This would be our own sadomasochism. This would be our ways in which seeking pleasure ends up harming ourselves, whether that's addiction or destroying our lives or other people's lives that are close to us. Right. Our children's lives. Um, and our symptoms, that there's an aspect of every symptom that on the one hand is searching for life and on the other hand is death-driven. And this made people crazy, this idea, because I, don't, I think we don't want to think about how destructive we are. We want to believe that there's... It's just an aberration, the destructiveness, rather than an intrinsic part of life. Especially self-destructiveness. That's Why are we self-destructive? I mean, for Freud, it's the intergenerational transmission of the death drive going all the way back to the beginning of civilization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he says that there was like a, there's a, a super, super, super daddy who wanted everything for himself without limits. All the women, all the food, all the stuff. Big phallic daddy says, mm -hmm. I get all this stuff and you get near me and try to take anything away from me. I kill you. And then we had to kill this guy. 
because <laughs> he's taking all our stuff. Uh-huh. And then that wasn't such a great answer. We didn't like that so much. So we had to create a prohibition against murder. And then we had to feel really guilty for killing Big Bad Daddy. And this is the origin of civilization trying to steer its own ship. But as we prohibit and as we try to inhibit and as we try to curb desire and narcissism, we don't do such a great job. And so we keep passing down all of our failures or half successes, whichever way you want to put it. And it's up to the next generation to try to make something better or more equitable or more life giving rather than death dealing. Yeah. And, you know, Freud has this statement in Civilization is Discontents where he says, um, I try not to value any particular manifestation of a, of a civilization over any other. Say this is a good moment. That's a bad moment. Every terrible moment brings something good and something even worse into existence. And for him, that's the history of the human species. What do you think Freud would have made? This is reminding me of how much of a focus there is on trauma in therapy mm-hmm. and self-help these days. Um, what do you think Freud would have made of that? I mean, on the one hand, he's, he's you know, Mr. Trauma himself. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly important uh, concept in Freud. At the same time, I think he's much more sober about it than we are these days. Everybody's traumatized. Mm-hmm. Sexuality is traumatic. Existence is traumatic. So he's often faulted for not um, blowing up trauma in the way that I think it exists now in in the discourse or whatever in the world at large. This is what happens with Dora. He says, you know, a girl of your age should be able to handle a situation like this about the hair K thing. Right, about being propositioned by an adult man. Yeah. Yeah. When she's what, 13 or something, 16, 16. Yeah. Um, what is the pleasure principle? So interpretation of dreams style, the idea was the, that we're seeking pleasure. We're seeking satisfaction. And he thought that there was a kind of equal, like that the, that the, the mind, the, the mental apparatus was seeking equilibrium with respect to pleasure and unpleasure. And he thought it was like kind of balancing itself out. Mm -hmm. So when he wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he was admitting that he was wrong about that homeostatic nature of the mind. And he said, actually, we're like, you know, we're in free fall. (laughs) (laughs) There's no, there's no balance. There's no homeostasis. There's no, like, there's no equilibrium. We are constantly dealing with something that's out of balance. Okay. With respect to pleasure and that the pleasure seeks to go beyond itself. You know, it's why you don't stop that good enough. Yeah. You go for more and more more and more. That's why you overindulge. Um, And so he then had to bring up this death driven quality to the human psyche. And he says that we still, um, we have to adapt psychoanalysis to this because the patients aren't just going to write the ship. They're going to have to come to terms with their absolute desirousness, absolute malice, envy, wish for the other's evisceration, Mm -hmm. um, these sort of aspects of the psyche. What does coming to terms with that mean? Sort of integrating it and not feeling shame over it? Yeah, I think recognizing it, making a place for it. Knowing that it's okay to feel that? Or is it okay to feel 
I think knowing that you, it's not okay to feel oh, okay. these things. Knowing I thought that I was saying that it's fine to think about the evisceration of the other. No, I mean, I, I, I think that that has to be a part of it, but at the same time, it's not, I don't think that we're ever okay with it. Mm. I mean, you know, when you really, really get close to the fact that you want to disappear the other person, you want to, you want to smudge them out of existence, it's pretty terrifying. And I, I, I mean, I, I mean this because like, we just talk about this as an idea and this is what's, what's complicated in analysis when you, when you come really close to that absolute breaking apart of the boundaries of the body, the death of the other, uh, it's something horrific. Yeah. Yeah. What do you have written on that page? Um, well, what comprises dreams? We talked about nature of memory, interpretation of dreams, page 53. Let's see what that says. Oh, define cathexis and cathected. <laughs> I still don't fucking get it. I mean, it's like a blockage kind of or something. Anti-cathexis, cathexis, decathected. He's quoting Schultz here, Schultz, but he says nothing which we have once mentally possessed can be entirely lost. Mm. And even the most insignificant impression leaves an unalterable trace, which is indefinitely capable of revival. So that made me think about um, how Freud approaches memory. I mean, does, does, is he saying that everything that we've experienced is in there somewhere? Yeah. Do you think that's true? I do. I do. feels impossible to me. I don't know. You know, there's like a late stage moment in analysis. I mean, I had it in my own analysis where kind of delirious. It's probably a bit defensive against the transference or something, but like, like the dream becomes this like rabbit hole, this portal where you just like all of a sudden go back to all these things. It's like, it's all there all of a sudden it's quasi miraculous. I mean, things that you think that you would never remember for a second, just whoosh, 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 come back. And, um, it's great. It's delirious. It's, it's ecstatic. Yeah. I really want that to happen to me. <laughs> I do. My memory, I don't know if it's a trauma response or if it's a laziness thing or, if it's a marijuana thing or what, but I, my memories of my earlier life are so hazy and dark. Well, there's, you know, it's a question of repression. Yeah. I mean, you have to tackle repression and... <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Someone just came in. Um, you have leaf blowers, you have people entering. It's very exciting on yeah. this podcast. It's like a play. Um I think that that's the deliriousness of the moment as if you crack some hold that the repression had and then all this stuff can come up. And that's not even the end of the story. That mm -hmm. was just like one, you know, like really good, you know, mm -hmm. hit at the armor. Yeah. Um, I believe it. I do. I mean, I think what if, what if you didn't believe it? What if you didn't believe in it? What would you be saying about the mind? I'm thinking that it's something about self-preservation, something about protection, you know, Protection from the past, from memory, something like that. It just can go away. Yeah, and maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> maybe you don't want to know. All right. What about your dream? Oh, I'll tell you about my dream. You want to do it on the record? Yeah. I had a dream that I was digging plants, potted plants out of a closet. Uh-huh. Um, I think they were mostly like succulents, like cactuses. And I was pulling them out of a closet to take them into the sunlight to take good care of them, to, like, make them healthy again. Um, and 
the place I was taking them was a stone beach, you know, beaches that are stone instead of sand. Mm. It was a stone beach. I was setting them up on a table on a stone beach. And then my mother appeared wearing only a shirt, nothing on, nothing below. And she had a big erect penis. And she was telling me that I was doing it wrong, that I was not taking good care of these things. <laughs> um, and so I stepped back away from her and started throwing rocks at her to try to get her to leave me alone, to go away. Mm-hmm. That's all I remember. That's so great. Yeah, it's a good one. But it is the phallic mother who's the one who, um, you know, reprimands you as a child. It's the absolutely mm-hmm. all-powerful mother, which Freud attributes to the woman with a penis. Yeah. Um, for all of the reasons that we talked about in this podcast. I I just heard suck so loud, and then your mother had a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you heard what? Succulence. Oh, succulence. Right. Okay. So there's an oral stage thing going on here. Yeah. I don't know. I thought about these like plants I was pulling out of the closet as well. First of all, I thought about something coming out of the closet mm-hmm. or somebody coming out of the closet, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, which makes me question my the nature of my own sexuality. And then I thought about these like succulents and cactuses are like the most difficult to take care of. But they're also supposed to be the easiest in a way because they don't need so much. No, that's true, I guess. Why am I saying they're difficult to take care of? Mm. You're right. Yeah, you just put them in the sun and water them once a month. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. That's all I've Everything got. is there. Everything that you need to know is right there in that slip of the tongue. Thanks to Jameson for her time and generosity and her insights. Uh, I came out of this experience with a great appreciation for Freud, not just as a thinker, but as a writer. I find him surprisingly funny, though I'm not sure he was meaning to be, but I think sometimes he was. This episode was recorded by me with Jameson in Los Angeles, California. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller in Philadelphia and facilitated by Lars Kreslins, also in Philadelphia. The music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Germani of Los Angeles. And finally, my now usual sad plea follows. Please consider becoming a patron of this podcast at patreon.com apology. It's $5 per month, and it all goes toward the costs of recording and getting apology out into the world. Okay, thanks. Talk to you next time. <laughs>